Church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Feels like it's been a minute since we've been in 1 Corinthians together, but now we are back and here we are and I am excited for it. As you uh, find your place in your Bible and get your notes out, our children are dismissed in the back. I want to remind you that this evening we will gather again at 6 o'clock for our third Sunday evening worship service. So if you're new with us, on the third Sunday of the month, our church gathers twice, once here in the morning. We're glad you're here. And you are invited to join us again as we gather at 6 o'clock. This is going to be our Thanksgiving service. So let me tell you what that means. It means you are the sermon. And if you don't come ready to preach the sermon, it's going to be a really short trip tonight. I'm going to Give us just a brief encouragement of thanksgiving, and then we're going to allow you, the congregation, and I love this, we do this as a part of our thanksgiving service every year, an opportunity to share things you're thankful to the Lord for, things you're thankful to the Lord's church for. And so you come ready to share tonight. We will also receive an offering, a special offering tonight uh, for our benevolence fund. This is uh, designated money that we use to support families and people in need who are connected to our church. We have other resources that we use uh, and ministries that we use to help people outside of our church, but we have a special fund in our church for those inside and connected to our church, and this fund is running low. So I'd encourage you to come prepared to give tonight. There's also uh, an opportunity to give to that fund. It's called the Benevolence Fund uh, through our online giving platform. And then after the service, and it will be somewhat abbreviated because we do have our annual members meeting uh, tonight, we will do the things that we typically do in our annual members meeting, and we will also be discussing, kind of in an official capacity, not voting on, but discussing uh, the four motions from our elders concerning our constitution and bylaw changes that we recommended to you back in August and have been asking questions about for the last couple of months. Uh, if you'd like to see the agenda, it is at the information desk as well as uh, the 2024 Ministry Action Plan, which is our budget for next year, which we will also be voting on tonight. So uh, we look forward to seeing all of you here tonight at 6 for our third Sunday service and then our members for our members meeting following that. And guests, you are free to stay for our members meeting if you would like to. I invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's Word and turning our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we will be in verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against Myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers that is Nansman River Baptist Church. How grateful I am for this community of faith. Father, this morning we have sung to you, our God and King, songs of a persecuted and afflicted church. And we recognize that while in some ways we have experienced persecution and affliction as individuals, we understand that there are those around the world today who have experienced it in far greater ways. And we stand with them, recognizing the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in persecuted places, who are very much like the apostles this morning afflicted, without honor, homeless, buffeted, distressed, reviled and persecuted, slandered for the sake of the gospel. We pray, God, for your encouragement in their hearts that you would lift them up. And we confess, God, that in our pride, we so often think that the things that we have came from us. That the good that we have done has somehow come from our own ingenuity and creativity. This has proceeded forth out of ourselves. Father, would you draw us to repentance? Would we not find ourselves like the Corinthians, puffed up and conceited? But would we find ourselves like the apostles, humble servants of God? Challenge us through your word, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, today's sermon is entitled, Humility Matters. Pride, which is a main idea here, the opposite of humility, is a unity killer. Unity is still the primary theme that Paul is addressing as he writes this first letter to the church in Corinth. The first four chapters is concerned with the subject of unity, that they had become disunified as a church, that they had created unnecessary divisions and factions amongst themselves that they had rallied around varying personalities. And they had allowed these factions to make them think 
better of themselves than of others in the congregation. And this pride, this selfishness, this false sense of worth was killing their unity. Pride will kill you. It'll kill me. Pride is the root of so many of the sins in our lives. You could argue that pride is the root of all of the sins in our lives because sin is when we think we know better than God and we disobey him. But pride within a church will kill the church's unity and will kill the church's mission quicker than nearly anything else. Over the last few years, uh, in the podcast craze, some of you are into the podcast craze. You can't go anywhere without listening to a podcast on something. You can't discuss a subject without telling people about a podcast that you heard about that subject. Well, in that podcast craze, it's become popular to release podcasts about once great churches. Popular ones were podcast, probably the most popular one was one known as the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Another one that released just in the last few months entitled, What Happened at First Baptist Church? About First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida. I listen to both of these podcasts. Um, I only listen, I listen to podcasts when I'm cutting the grass. It's basically the only time that I listen to. And it became just kind of enamored by uh, these two once great, very popular churches seen as highly influential churches in, in the United States over the last couple of decades or more even. And, and then what happened? Why, why such devastating outcomes? And, and really, there, there's a lot of reasons, and the podcasts go into great depths into what happened and the leadership struggles and, and all of the things. And Mars Hill and First Baptist Jacksonville, very different churches but if you look at the root of the root cause of the problem, it really is pride. Very, very different and very different outcomes, fortunately. There's been revival and church health at First Baptist Jacksonville. Mars Hill doesn't even exist any longer. But it was ultimately pride that, that led these once great churches astray. The, the author of Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Like we... We understand this. And after writing for three chapters about the need for unity and unity around the gospel and not around personality, Paul really gets to the, to the culmination of his primary point here in the first third or so of this letter. And that is the sinful pride of the church at Corinth was causing the disunity amongst them and that they needed to rid themselves of this pride. And in his strongest language in maybe the entire book, Paul is going to point once and for all to the cause of their disunity, their own sinful pride and being puffed up around their judgment of the servants of God. The main idea of today's sermon is that all believers are called to live humble lives in service to the Lord who alone judges our hearts, provides for our every need, and calls us to share in his affliction. This is a sermon for every individual here today. We all need to hear this because sinful pride will creep into every one of our lives if we are not paying attention. And it is also a call corporately because 
like those churches of, that podcasts have been made about. If this were to happen at Nansman River, no one would make a podcast, but it would be equally as devastating if we were to allow pride to slip into who we are and to cause disunity here amongst this brotherhood of faith. Two exegetical points today, both of them on a right path based off of the verses that we're considering. First, the Lord alone is fit to judge and reward the work of his servants. The Lord alone is fit to judge and reward the work of his servants. Let's consider this first paragraph together, verses one through five. This is how one should regard us. The us is the apostles. He's talking about himself, Apollos, his missionary team, uh, Peter, who he had referenced earlier in the book as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation, our commendation from God. So Paul begins this kind of final argument about unity by by looking at the Corinthians and saying, the way that you are perceiving your spiritual fathers, the apostles, those who have come before you, those who have preached the gospel to you, those who planted your church is wrongheaded. He says, you think you have the right to judge us. And if we think back to what we've seen in the previous chapters, this is what Paul has addressed, that They thought that they could uh, create division in the church or factions within the church based off of personality, based off of preaching style and teaching style. Well, I'm of team Apollos or I'm of team Paul or I'm of team Peter as if these, as if they have the right to do so. And so he says, this is how you should regard us. So how did they regard us? The, the apostles. They regarded Paul and the apostles according to preference. They liked one more than the other. How should they have regarded them? Paul says they should have regarded them as servants with a clear mission. He says in verse one that they are stewards. They are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are the gospel. And this is what Paul and the apostles have been called to of proclaiming the gospel and spreading the gospel around the world. And they are stewards of Christ. They are servants. Stewards and servants is the same thing. We have to understand kind of first century culture as it related to stewardship and servants just quickly. The primary form of employment in the Roman world is what Paul's describing here. The Bible sometimes uses the term slavery for it, but for Americans who are so uh, influenced by chattel slavery that is in the history of this country, we hear slavery and we kind of think the wrong thing. That kind of slavery did exist and it would have been condemned in scripture, but what's being described here is 
really the way lots and lots of people were employed. They would actually give themselves into servitude for a period of time. They would able to be able to buy themselves out, and it would, it would give them the resources that they would need. It would give them the protection they would need. It would give them a job. Some of these people were extremely important. In wealthy households, there would be incredibly important stewards who would be entrusted with much. This is why Jesus is able to tell stories of, about faithful stewards that would be entrusted with years and years worth of wages because servants and stewards were, were entrusted with much and God has entrusted the apostles with the mysteries of God, with the gospel. They've been entrusted with much. And yet the church at Corinth thought they had the right to judge the apostles. And this is what Paul addresses in verses two through five. He, he says, why are you judging? I don't, I don't even judge myself. That there, he says in verse 4, I don't even know if there's anything that I should judge myself on, but I, but I don't judge myself. This doesn't mean that Paul's not looking for sin in his life and, and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to, to root out sin. He's talking about his work in the gospel ministry. He's talking about his work as an apostle of proclaiming the gospel. It's that work that the church at Corinth thought they could sit in judgment over, that, that Apollos was a better preacher than Paul, or Paul was a better writer than Apollos, or Peter was better than both of them, or however it was that they had divided these things in their minds. And he tells them, don't, don't pronounce judgment over these people that you, because you don't have the right to. They're not your servants. Paul's not submitting himself to judgment of Corinth. He says, I'm not even submitting myself to human judgment or even the judgment of or human courts or even the judgment of myself because only the Lord can truly judge. Why? Because he alone sees the heart. What do we see in verse five? Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. It is the Lord that sees that which is done in darkness. It is the Lord who sees that which is in man's heart. Then each one will receive his commendation, his commendation from God, that God is the one who will judge and reward his servants. Now, talking about a different doctrinal issue, but using the same illustration in Romans chapter 14, Paul says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what does Paul say? Only a master can judge his servant. Only the one who has, has called Paul as an apostle and has set him on his mission of planting churches amongst the Gentiles, only he can determine if what's being done is glorifying to God or not because there's so many things that can be hidden in the heart. There's so many things that can be done in the darkness. And Paul says, we're just gonna let the Lord settle those things in the end. Church, don't... We don't set ourselves in the place of judgment of those things. Now, a couple clarifying points that are helpful for us because we could overapply this. I want to give you three just quickly. First, Paul's not saying that a church can't hold its pastors, its elders accountable. We certainly can. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells the church how to do that. Number two, Paul isn't negating church discipline. He's not negating that the, he's not telling the church that we shouldn't 
reveal sin in the lives of one another, calling one another to repentance, and even putting someone out of the church who is refusing to repent. It would, it would be silly for Paul to make that argument here and then say what he says in chapters five and six. And when we get to chapters five and six in a couple of weeks, we're gonna see this. It's a clear call for church discipline within that local church. Number three, it doesn't negate judging doctrine, even doctrine of apostles. I would reference you to Galatians chapter one, where Paul says, if, if, if anybody preaches a gospel contrary to what we are telling you. Let them be accursed that the congregation is supposed to judge these things, that you are supposed to hold your leaders accountable, that you are supposed to hold one another accountable, and that you are supposed to guard the doctrines of the church. So then where is the line? Where is the line of what we as a congregation are supposed to judge and what we as a congregation are not? Well, If we're judging a faithful servant based on the way they serve the Lord, according to their conscience and convictions, we don't get to stand in judgment over that that person. There are lots, and I'll just use myself as an example. It's it's really tempting for me, I, I can't speak for all pastors, it's really tempting for me to watch how other pastors pastor their churches and to, and to, kind of get in the mud of, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. I, I wouldn't preach like that. I wouldn't lead like that. Man, I, I just remind me, maybe it's just because it's a temptation for me. Like I just remind myself over and over, don't, don't sit in judgment of the way other people are doing things faithfully called by God. Now, if they're preaching wrong doctrine, correct wrong doctrine, right? And I don't think it's my role or our role to correct the wrong doctrine of other churches. But if it were to affect ours, then we would, we would certainly seek to correct it and to point it out. But if, if they're faithfully serving the Lord in a different way, and that's really what was happening here. Apollos had his style, Paul had his style, Peter had his style. And the church was like, oh, there's some people in the church, I like this style, I like this. That, that's not, that, that's silly for us to think that we should judge that because these are servants of the Lord. So let's think about this in light of unity for a moment. How ununifying would it be in our church if every small group sat in judgment of how other small groups conducted themselves, how they fellowshiped together or how their teacher taught the group or how they cared for one another? If our small group sat around going, man, we're the best at this. These other groups, they don't, they don't fellowship like we do or they don't, they don't care for their members like we do or look how good our teacher is compared to somebody else. And that would cause incredible disunity within the church. Think about it on the ministry side. How ununifying would it be in our church if every ministry team sat in judgment of how other ministry teams function in their area of our mission? If our mission teams were like, we had, we had this many people get saved, but your ministry team only had this many people get saved. We're obviously better than you. Like, not only is that just silly, but it's incredibly disunifying. It, it would be an incredible detriment to our church. And yet that's what the church at Corinth was doing. We have to understand because Paul's about to get ugly with them, okay? And so we've got to understand what they were doing and why it was such a problem. And that would be a problem for us. And it was a problem for them. And Paul says first, only Jesus can judge his servants. So you get out of the way and, and, and don't, 
don't stand in judgment in places where you've not been instructed in scripture to stand in judgment. Number two, the marks of a true servant are rooted in humility and shared affliction. The marks of a true servant are rooted in humility and shared affliction. Let me just point out to you again, chapter or verse two, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, this verse sometimes gets abused by people, but here's what I want you to understand. There is a expectation of faithfulness of the servants of God. And so if you are a follower of Christ today, you, my friend, are a servant of God, and there is an expectation that your, your faith would be found faithful, that your actions, what God has called you to, and how God has gifted you within the local church, and your commitment to the local church, that you would be found faithful in that. So there is an expectation of faithfulness. But that faithfulness, the marks of a true faithful servant are rooted not in success and pride, but in humility and shared affliction. Now, let's move into verses six and seven. I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn from us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's just consider these verses separately quickly. Verse six is a clear statement of his application. I believe Paul is looking back when he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. I think Paul is looking back over the last three chapters and he's saying, Church at Corinth, I'm applying all of that, everything that you've heard about not having factions and being unified in the gospel, on mission together, all of this I'm applying to myself and Apollos. He's making it abundantly clear. We should have no question because, again, Paul's about to get harsh with them. All right? So he's saying, all of this I've applied so that you may, right, for this reason, not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So why is he doing this? I'm doing this so you'll stop being prideful and submit to scripture. When he says, not go beyond what is written, what he's saying is scripture. And there are certain things that the church is trusted to judge in scripture, and there's certain things the church is not entrusted to judge in scripture. And Paul's being clear. There's, you have your instructions, but don't go beyond that. Because by going beyond that, what happens? You become puffed up in favor of one against another. And the one against another is at first Apollos or Paul or, or Peter, but then it ends up being one against another in the room because we've taken these sides. So he's clearly laid out, I've applied all of this to my ministry, to Apollo's ministry, so that you will do what Scripture's instructing you to do and not be prideful. Now, Paul has some questions for them. These are rhetorical questions. We have to read them that way. A little bit of what is said both in this verse and in the next couple of verses gets lost in translation for us. So I'm going to have to explain kind of the, the way that Paul writes. You know, if you ever sent a text message to somebody and they just completely misunderstood what you meant, like they thought you were being mean and ugly and you weren't, sarcasm, that kind of thing doesn't communicate over social media and text messages very well, emails, that kind of thing. Sometimes the same is true in scripture. Paul's actually being very sarcastic here. And if we read this wrong, we don't think that he is, but he is. 
He's using actually sarcastic language. He's going to ask some three rhetorical questions. The first one is this in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? And you say, I don't really understand what he's meaning when he says, for who sees? Is he questioning about how do other people view them? How do they view themselves? How are they viewing one another? Let me just sum this up for you the way that Gordon Fee, who's an expert on 1 Corinthians, how Gordon Fee interprets this question. You ready? Who do you think you are? That's Paul's first question. Who, who do you think you are? This is, it's a question of presumption. They, they have developed a presumptuous nature to think that they can sit in judgment over the servants of God. Because if they think they can sit in judgment over the servants of God, then they are placing themselves as the masters. And who is the master? God is. So Paul rightly asks, who do you think you are? Second question, what do you have that you did not receive? So he asks, what if this is from you? This, if the first question deals with their presumption, their second question deals with ungratefulness, the ungratefulness of their heart to assume that somehow this is about them, that, that they, they can be pompous and arrogant enough to sit in judgment over others and, and to divide the church in this way as if they have created anything good in their midst. The third question, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Really is a combination of both. Who do you think you are and why do you think this is from you? This is intended to drive home the point. What gives you the right, Paul says, to sit in judgment over the servants of God? Let me illustrate it like this. Parents, imagine for a minute that your elementary age school child is off at school, at, at church, and just picture them off somewhere else, out in the neighborhood. And you get a phone call from somebody in authority saying, hey, I was watching your kid play today with their friends. And they were making fun of another kid because he didn't live in as nice of a house as your kid lives in because they didn't wear as nice of clothes as your kid wears, because they didn't have the newest gaming system that your kid has, that, that they don't ride around in as nice of a car as your kid rides around in. What kind of conversation would you have with little Johnny when he gets home? Who do you think you are? What gives you the, the right to assume that, that any of this, right, that any of this belongs to you at all? Kids, we got kids in here. Kids, um, none of the things that you have are yours. They all belong to those, those bigger people sitting next to you right now. And I mean everything, okay? You, you don't have the right to look down on somebody else because you think you want to say, you don't own nothing. And this is the point Paul's making. Who, who do you think you are? So he asks these three rhetorical questions, kind of driving home this point. Now, we need to set our minds to, to these questions. Understand, for, for instance, think about what the Apostle James writes in James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due, due to change. This is clear biblical teaching, that there's nothing good happening in our lives. There's nothing good happening in our church that comes from us. 
It all comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And when we allow our sinful pride and boasting and arrogance to puff us up and think that somehow it has anything to do with us to the point where we can sit in judgment of others and how they're serving God. John Calvin writing about this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, there is no man that has anything of excellency from himself. Therefore, the man that extols himself is a fool and an idiot. This is the questions that Paul asks the church at Corinth, but the dressing down is not done. It has just begun. What proceed, or what follows is as close to a public shaming as you will find in the New Testament outside of maybe the book of Galatians. What Paul does in verses 8 through 13 is he compares their prideful, presumptuous position with his and the other apostles' clear and apparent weakness. He says in verses 8 through 13, already you have all you want. Now, this isn't a positive affirmation. Sometimes people read this. Again, that's why you have to read it with the, the dripping sarcasm. This isn't a positive affirmation. This is a clear dressing down. Already you have, all, all, you have all you already want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might, we might share the rule with you. He, he's saying, you're thinking of yourself as kings. And, and like you would bring us along somehow into your kingdom. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He's saying the entire universe sees this clearly. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Think about the comparison for a moment. In verse 8, Paul says, you see yourselves as kings and rulers, but the apostles, in verse 9, are condemned are a spectacle. When he uses that word condemned and spectacle together, have in mind the Colosseum. Have in mind the, the martyred saints of Christ fed to lions for the sake of the gospel. And the church would sit in Corinth thinking themselves as kings and judges of those martyrs. He says in verse 10, you think yourselves as wise, but we're actually fools. You think yourselves as strong, but we're weak. Paul goes on then, he just bursts into this litany. He says, we're hungry and thirsty and poorly dressed and roughly treated. We're homeless. We're required to work. We're reviled. We're persecuted. We're slandered. And then he gets to verse 13. And Paul uses some words that, if our English translators were brash enough, would appear as different than scum and refuse. I'll just leave it at that. He uses shocking terminology to just to, to, to describe the, the true difference. Corinth, you see yourself as kings. You've puffed yourself up to the point where, where you see yourself as kings, and here we are. 
the called apostles of God, spreading the gospel amongst the nations, and we are simply scum and refuse, and the entire universe sees us this way. Now, let's address something that's probably nagging in the back of your mind right now. You're like, I would kind of rather be a king than be scum and refuse. And far too many Christians today, far too many people that claim the name of Christ at least, think the Bible is promising them earthly kingship. And think the Bible is promising them earthly prominence. I think the Bible is promising them the exact opposite of what Paul says to be true about himself and the other apostles, that somehow the church would actually become what he says in sarcasm about Corinth. That teaching is anathema to the New Testament. It's completely opposite of what the scriptures really say is true and should be our attitude. For instance, consider with me what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Very similar to what he says at the end of this passage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You say, is it worth it to be all of these things that Paul has said, hungry and thirsty and reviled and persecuted and slandered? Is following Christ worth it? He says, yes, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it because when we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also share in his resurrection. And in Romans 8, 18, he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So hear me, church, we will one day be as kings. We will one day live in the glory of God. We will one day be all of those things that Corinth assumed of themselves. But that day is not today. (laughs) Today, we look at what God is doing in our midst and realize that it is fully God doing it. Today, we look at any good thing in our lives and realize that it did not come about because of us, but it came because God in his goodness has entrusted it to us. And as I prayed at the beginning, we realized that there are Christians around our world today, churches around our world today, who are experiencing these things not in thought but in action. And that we say, while we will not go seeking after persecution and sword, we are ready to endure it. And we're ready to endure it because the Holy Spirit changes our minds from being puffed up and conceited and prideful. By the way, prideful people will not endure persecution for very long. To being humble and contrite understanding our position as servants of Christ. So when any of these things come in our lives, our perspective is like that of Paul. This is just a temporary suffering for a temporary time, but there is glory that awaits. 
So what? Do I live my life in relation to the Lord? There's, there's two parts of this. To the Lord and others in sinful pride or Christ-honoring humility. The church at Corinth needed a reality check, and Paul gives them one. My question to you today, church, is do we? Do we need that same kind of dressing down? Or maybe do you, as an individual, need this same kind of encouragement today, this admonition today, to understand this is not about you. It's about what God is doing it's about how God is moving and it, it's about his glory and it, it is not to, to puff us up, but it is to make much of Christ and that sinful pride will tear us apart both internally and corporately. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament about this. The, the Old Testament book of Job, a long book, a book that stands as kind of unique in the way not only it is written, but unique in the way that it, it finds itself in the history of, of the Old Testament, which means we have no idea where it finds itself in the history of the Old Testament. But this book of Job is like fascinating, right? Like Job's this wealthy guy, lives somewhere far away from Israel and, and, and has it all and it's taken away and he has it all and it's taken away. And I mean, and you may read that and you may be like, man, if I was Job, I'd kind of feel the same way that, that he does. I mean, Job really kind of questions God and he gets some friends around him and they, they question Job's sin. They're like, oh yeah, God's just, you're just a sinner, Job. And God did this to you, right? And so basically God accuses, or Job accuses God of injustice. This is, this is a prideful demand of Job. He, he basically pridefully demands, explain yourself. And in Job 38, God shows up and explains himself. We read in part, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? <laughs> who do you think you are? God says, dress for action like a man. Put your big boy pants on. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretches the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And that's just the first seven verses of Job 38. It goes on all of Job 38, all of Job 39, all of Job 40, all of Job 41. And it's just like, who do you think you are? And you get Job's response in Job 42, Job answers the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things to, too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make, make it known to me. I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You say, why, why use Job as an illustration here? Because some of us need the response of Job this morning. Some of us need to be confronted with the word of God this morning in our own sinful pride and agree with Job that I, I, I repent in dust and ashes because God, you are great and I am not. But here's the good news today, church. Back in the book of James, that apostle promises us that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul called himself a steward of the mysteries of the gospel. This is the mystery of the gospel. 
that God exalts those who recognize that they cannot exalt themselves. You think about our initial response to the gospel, that when we hear the good news of the work of Jesus, that that God is holy and man is sinful, but Christ died in our place so that we may have life through faith in him. When we hear that, we're faced with this internal human decision, right? Do I believe that or not? Do I believe that I can save myself or not? And then the work of the Holy Spirit does this thing that we can't really explain. He humbles us. He takes us from our pride down to our knees that says, God, I cannot do this on my own. And then what happens? God exalts those whom he humbles. And the exaltation of God is not like the exaltation of man. It's not sinful and prideful and boastful. It's not puffed up. It's it's an exaltation in Christ that we're exalted because Christ is exalted, recognizing that it has nothing at all to do with us, but everything to do with him and who he is and what he has done. This is the mystery of God and the goodness of his gospel today. Hear me, my friend, if you've never come to faith in Christ, if you will look to him, humble yourself, realizing you can't save yourself, but Jesus can save you Through that humility, Christ will exalt you. And some of us need to heed this warning today. This is both personal, but it is also corporate because the message of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4 is very corporate. It's about this disunified church that had allowed pride to be the root cause of their disunity. So I want you to hear what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He encourages that local church. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he says, with all humility, the first attribute, the first Christian attribute that Paul names when he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is humility. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He says, notice verse three eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Pride and humility aren't the only questions that we have to ask about our unity, but they're very important ones. Because if we allow ourselves to become puffed up and conceited, we allow ourselves to sit in judgment over things that God has not told us in his word to sit in judgment over, we become disunified. We allow the enemy to creep into the work of God and great would be the fall of this congregation. So I ask you today, is today the day that you will humble yourself before the Lord? Is today the day that you will repent in dust and ashes? Is today the day that you will be convicted of your sinful pride and turn to God? Or even for the Christian, is today the day that you are needed to be dressed down in the same way that the church at Corinth did from the apostle? Are there ways that we are allowing our pride to affect our unity? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel towards us and how your word shines as a bright light into the dark reaches of our hearts. And I confess to you my pride that I all too often allow to cloud my judgment, 
to influence my words and my perception of others. God, would you root out pride from amongst us? Would you, would you rid us, God, of boasting? Would you do this even in the secret places that only you can see? So that we may be your humble servants, stewards of the mystery of the gospel. Thank you for that mystery. Thank you that when your Holy Spirit humbles us, he then exalts us in Christ. And we pray, God, that there are those who are still in their sin today, that they would be humbled, that they would turn to you and be saved. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, today was mainly a sermon about the church and about Christians, but there's a clear explanation of the good news of the gospel and our need for it. And so maybe you're here today. Maybe you came because it's Thanksgiving. You're like, I don't go to church around Thanksgiving. And you hear that you have this desperate, undying need to be saved because you you can't save yourself. And in your pride, you thought you could, but today you realize you couldn't. At the end of our service, I'll be with our connect team at the lobby. I'd love to talk with you about how you can respond to the gospel and put your faith in Christ. Church, I invite you now to stand with me as we sing together.